Yep, everyone's on the edge of their seat, uh, or uh, they just went and ordered a hat um, from our merch station. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this summer we are, are uh, jumping in and continuing this Corinthians series. We've been spending a year in Corinthians, and over the summer we've been hitting a variety of texts. Uh, last week we talked about eternity and the resurrection that's going to happen in the future. That was fun. Uh, this morning as we tackle this one, um, I just want to welcome everybody for your last Sunday at Hub City uh, because everyone is going to want to leave after. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, thanks for checking us out, and I hope you uh, stick around because next week we're going to talk about sexuality. So if you think this one's tough, uh, yeah, uh, things are going to get spicy. So nothing? No? Okay. Uh, but... Here's a question. What do we do when we hit a text like this? We're reading in our Bibles and we're going and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus died for the church. He rose from the dead. This is great. Go love each other. Love your neighbors yourself. Okay, I'm on board for that. What do I do when I hit this passage? I wrestled with this one this week. I labored over this one. Uh, I'll tell you, I wanted to do what everybody wants to do when they hit this passage. Skip right over it. Do we have to preach this one? Is anyone really going to read this card? Can I just skip right over the fact that, you know, what do we do when we hit a tough subject like this? And I say that this is a tough one because I've grown up in church. I've been in church for 30 years, and I have never heard a sermon on this passage of Scripture. Maybe you have. I hadn't. I had to go find it. And guess what? There weren't that many to pick from. Because even pastors are scared of this one. We're, we're, we skip over this one. I understand that this is a tough one to process because you start, this is more than just haircuts, okay? This is more than just hats in church. You start talking gender, gender roles, gender identity. How many of you understand that is a contentious topic in our culture? It is controversial. It is confusing in our culture. It is convoluted, and, and yet... As I, I was studying this week and praying and laboring over this message, I was thinking, well, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. So guess what? For 2,000 years, we've been struggling with gender and our identity and our roles, and it's been contentious and confusing and convoluted. And even before that, I mean, you rewind all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, and it gets contentious and confusing and convoluted. And, and what do I mean to say there is that this is nothing new to Jesus. This is not new to the church. And we feel like, oh, but we are really struggling with this one. And uh, it's been for generation and millennia that we've struggled with this one. So we hit this text, and some of us just want to skip over it. Some of us want to sharpie over it. Like, get me the sharpie, honey. We're, we're just going to black that one out and skip right over that. Some of us want to read this passage. Do we enforce it? Do we just strictly enforce Okay, if that's the case, our greeting team is going to start handing out hats. Ladies, when you show up to church, we're going to start giving out hats? Like, is that what we do? Do we start having scissors for all the guys with long hair? Like, that's what Paul says. Guys, can't have long hair. You better cut it. You know, I got a buzz cut. Like, this is not a sermon illustration. This is just my summer do, okay? I buzz my head. What scared me is I started to see a thin spot, so I thought, uh-oh, maybe God's just enforcing this passage without me wanting him to enforce this passage. 
Yikes. But as we encounter difficult passages of Scripture, whether it's this one or other ones, we're going to hit something that's confusing. We're going to hit something that's difficult to grasp and, 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 and a struggle for us. It doesn't fit our culture and our cultural standpoint on things. And, and I would encourage us as we grapple with a text like this, um, pastorally, I just want to encourage us, let's not avoid tough texts. Hard texts are going to create soft hearts. As we take the time to dive into a, a tough text, God's going to soften our hearts. I, I think if we skip over a text, we skip over a moment to be, become more like Jesus, to be taught and have a, a, a moment of growth and discovery and development. And I would ask yourself, right? I, I, would, I would challenge you to ask yourself, why does this text bother you? That's an okay question to ask. That's not wrong. And I don't blurt out the answer, but I want you to think, when you hit a tough text on your own, because if we tell you, go read your Bible, I'm sure this week or next week or at some point you're going to read a text, it's going to be confusing. Stop and ask yourself, why does this bother me? What is it stirring up in me? And allow God's truth to begin to be the thing that shapes me more than culture. Don't let culture be the the influential voice. Let God's word be the influential voice. And even more than that, too, well, not more than that, but in addition to that, don't let church tradition be the thing that shapes us. Some of us, you've grown up in churches where that is the paradigm that you grew up in, a much more conservative, traditional, we hold to the letter of the law sort of background. And that church tradition is going to influence the way that you read this. And, and, I, and I challenge us, don't let tradition, don't let culture be the thing that shapes us. Let God's word. And as we dive into God's word, can we come at it also with an empathy to understand that everyone in the room does not read and see these things the same way? Understanding that we're at different points in our journey, different points in our understanding. And I can't just assume that you all read this when Cameron read it and that said, amen, here we go. I see it the way you see it. Can we come at these difficult texts understanding that even people within our church, but also people outside of our church, are going to read this differently? People of different denominations and backgrounds and histories, you all have different stories and journeys. And so as we look at this text, here's, here's a little distinguishing thing with this text, but also with many others that I would encourage you and kind of pastorally give you a tool for your tool belt, is to to discuss and to discern and to distinguish the difference between timely truth and timeless truth. When you hit a tough scripture, try to distinguish the difference between what is timely, what is meant for that moment, a specific audience, a specific situation. This was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It was written to a specific audience, addressing specific issues or questions that they raised or problems going on in that specific church. Sometimes we have to remember we're reading somebody else's email. There are timely truths that needed to be addressed. Addressing certain things of culture and context and situations and, and understanding, and I know we would all agree with this, culture changes. Fads change, people change, audiences change. We can't just take everything that we read in our scriptures and copy and paste it for today. If we're going to do that, then you better be perfect at it. That's what Jesus said. If you're just going to copy and paste the letter of the law and make it, then if you think that's going to get you into heaven, you better be perfect. And I don't know about you, but I ain't perfect. 
And I'm definitely not good when I read like Levitical law and it talks about like mixed fibers because I'm wearing like some cotton blend right now and I'm, I'm breaking the law. I'm going to go eat some pork later. I'm going to break the law. There are timely truths. There are laws and commands and instructions and corrections that are timely for that specific group. And we become dangerous sometimes when we just copy and paste it. That's for everybody for all time, is it? And then there's others that are timeless. And when we hit these scriptures, this is what I wrestled with all week. God, what what are you trying to say to us today in this text? We need to buzz everyone's head? We need to get hats to women? There are timeless truths when we read the scriptures. Things that we can understand, those are for all people, for all time. So as we encounter a text like this one today, begins to rile some of us up. Some of us, when we heard verse 3, that the head of the woman is man. You're like, oh, okay, go on. Verse 8, the woman is the glory of man. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Verse 9, the woman has been created for man. Okay. So was Paul a chauvinist? Is the Bible antiquated? Is the Bible just archaic? And we're not supposed to, what do we do with that? And I want to create a, a, a bit of guidelines or parameters for us as we, as we talk about this, because I don't believe the gospel is sexist and misogynistic. I don't believe the gospel is bigoted. I believe the gospel is for all people, male and female. The gospel, let me say that again, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is for all people, male and female. The gospel promotes gender equality. Paul wrote this to the Galatian church. So anybody that says Paul's a chauvinist, he wrote the next verse I'm going to read to the Galatian church. And I don't think he just said Galatians are all for women and Corinthians are not. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 28, it is, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is for all people, no matter our background, no matter our skin color, no matter our height, our weight, our age, our gender. The gospel unifies people as one. There is a sense of equality in the gospel, that we are equally loved, equally saved, equally forgiven, equally brought into the family of God and able to sit in our Father's lap. Amen to that? That is for all people. The gospel promotes gender equality. Anybody that says that the gospel is is sexist isn't seeing the big picture. Jesus came to die for all people, not just white men in their middle class. The gospel promotes gender empowerment. Think about Jesus. He empowered women. He hung out with women. He talked with women. Women were treated as property back in the day. And Jesus goes and hangs out with them. The first people to see Jesus after the resurrection are women. Now, if you're making up the gospel, because some people believe it's made up and just like on par with Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, if you're making up the gospel, you don't write that women are the first ones to see the resurrected God. Because everybody would read that in ancient times and be like, yeah, right? 
The gospel is all about empowering women. God elevates and empowers women like Esther and Deborah and Miriam and various Old Testament prophetesses. I don't know what the plural of prophetess is. Prophetessai? Prophetesses. But in the Old Testament, those that would say, well, not in the Old Testament. Yes, women are elevated to positions of influence used by God to bring about his will. Paul and Peter both wrote and, and, and empowered and celebrated the women in their churches and in their ministries and in their lives. The Old Testament is quoted in the book of Acts chapter 2 at, at the coming of, of what we call the, the day of Pentecost. The, the, the Holy Spirit empowers his church. And, and we see this in Acts chapter 2. And Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 28. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The gospel empowers all genders. The spirit of God is upon all genders, not just white middle class men. Both male and female can have the Holy Spirit poured out on them, empowering them, can be used by God to advance the kingdom of God. And I found this an important thing to just shape. And I know with this, it's, it's like just seeing the tip of an iceberg. There's so much. We could do a whole series on gender and, and, and the church and what that looks like. But I felt it important to talk about it as the pastor of Hope City Church because in these times, people are wondering, well, what do we believe about this? And what do we believe about that? And, and in terms of, uh, of Hub City Church, we're part of what's called the Foursquare Denomination and our greater tribe that we are affiliated with. And the way that we are structured, the way that we empower women, we believe what I just said, that women, men, men the gospel promotes gender equality and gender empowerment. And so we function with a, with a mindset and a perspective on the, on the biblical truths of, of an egalitarian, meaning there is an equality. So we believe men and women are equal. This may be different than what you grew up in. This may be different than your background. This may be different than what you hold to right now, and you're just like squirming inside like, John, this is a tough one. <clears throat> but I, I want to be very clear. And we've had people leave our church because of this. I've had my mother-in-law, who at one point in her life was a, a licensed pastor, had people yell at her, confront her, belittle her because she was a female pastor. We hold to men can pastor, women can pastor, men can be missionaries, women can be missionaries. We believe that God has created man and woman to fulfill his purposes. And I think about the gospel and I think about it in its time, the gospel was scandalous. Think about it in an ancient time where women were viewed as property and lesser than. And Jesus came. And the good news of Jesus would have been scandalous back in that day. And Paul's writing to a Corinthian church that, man, they, they were forward thinkers. These men and women that followed Jesus in Corinth, they're, they're a group of people that understood the freedom found in the gospel. Oh, we're not constrained by these similar ways, right? Let, you're thinking about the, the context of Corinth. And, and, and this is a progressive culture. This is a, 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 a culture where these people are like, oh, my salvation isn't tied to my appearance. Holy smokes, this is great. There's freedom in that, right? 
that men and women can do things, and, and this is great, and this is awesome, and they understand all of these things, and, and their clothes, man, my haircut and my clothing are not the thing that's getting me into heaven. And Paul's like, hallelujah, that's true, that's correct theologically, but here's the correction he brings. Socially and culturally, your actions are creating a disruption. Theologically, guys and gals, you're correct. Your haircut, your appearance, it's not, it's not make or break for your salvation and whether or not Jesus loves you. But he, he's saying socially and culturally, your, your disruption you're making is actually, and here's where Paul gets upset, it's diminishing the effectiveness of the gospel in your community. Because people are looking at you and they're confused. Like, wait a second. You believe this, but you're living that. And he says, in reading this, I see a man that is also frustrated because it's causing a distraction within their church because when people are gathering together within the church, they're more distracted and focusing on the way people look. And they're looking at them rather than looking at Jesus. They're not looking at Jesus. They're like, hey, look at their haircut. Look at the way they're dressed. Look at what they're doing. And it's causing a disruption. Theologically, they're correct, right? For example, today, I could be preaching in shorts and sandals and a t-shirt. I could wear a t-shirt that says Miller Lite. There's nothing about my salvation that says I can't wear a shirt that says Budweiser on it. But it would be a distraction. Some of you would be like, why does he drink Miller Lite? You're going to drink something. But others would be like, is he condoning Miller Lite? Does he want us to drink Miller Lite? And it would become a distraction. And so Paul talks about head coverings. And so we're going to tackle this. We're going to hit it head on. Huh? Huh? All right. Some of you will get it at lunchtime. All right. Let's read, just to, just to stir it up a little bit more, let's read it together. Every man, no, you don't have to read it out loud. Just let's read it together in, in that you, yeah, let's revisit it. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with, his, with her head uncovered dishonors her head just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off and shaved, she should cover her head. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does it not the, does not the very nature of things teach you that a man has long hair? It is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is, a, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. So looking at these few verses, I just want to talk a little bit about culture and its time and understanding. And I had to do some research on this because I wasn't just, boom, knowledgeable about Corinth and haircuts and hairstylings. Now, maybe in beautician school, they teach you about ancient Corinth, but I didn't know that. And I had to study this and, and understand, like, why is this such a big deal to Paul? And what subliminal messages does it send to that culture? Well, women with shaved heads or with short hair in that time would have signified two different things. One, it would have been significant uh, if a woman was caught in adultery. As a sign of shame, they would have shaved their head. So everyone walking around would say, oh, that's what she did. That's why her hair is short. Or 
she was affiliated with one of the local temples in town, and there, there was a giant temple in town uh, for the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of sex. And these priestesses, yet I don't know the plural, priestessi, <clears throat> would walk around, and one of the things that they would do is shave their head or cut their hair really short. So that is the subliminal messaging. That is, the, uh, that is the, the, what's being communicated. When women would w walk around town without a hat or covering or shawl or something over their head, this is the way people interpreted it. Women without a head covering were prostitutes, showing their long, flowy hair, trying to entice men. Or when they were carrying, oh, carrying, wearing a head covering, it was a sign that they were married and in submission and in a relationship with a man. And so to not have that head covering said, I'm on the market and open for business. Men with long hair, this is the way that they saw it in that culture in that time, men with long hair were, were to be seen as people or men who were flaunting their sexuality and specifically promoting that they were homosexual. That's the way they constituted it. That's the way they interpreted it. That if men had long, flowy hair, then they were homosexual. Men with head coverings in worship were seen as legalistic. They were seen as this, well, we've got to cover our head and shield ourselves from God. It was more of a, a Jewish or, or Roman uh, subculture that, that had been immersed at that time. And so if men were coming to church with their head covering, it was this idea of like, you need to shelter your head, you need to cover your head, you, you know, you honor and sign to God. And men, and Paul's trying to look at all of those messages, all of those things. And you see, as we, as we discovered, just quickly talking about that, the way they see hair is way different than the way we see hair, right? Yes? Yes. I do not walk around town and see a man with long hair and think, that's the way he lives, right? I don't see a man with long hair and think homosexual. I see a man with long hair and think, he's got long hair. I had long hair at one point. You know why? I didn't want to cut it. I was a poor, broke college student. Other people grow their hair out because they're in a band. Or they want a man bun. I don't know. Women cut their hair short. Women wear hats. They don't wear hats. But what we see is Paul is writing to a culture that is very different than ours. They interpret these things differently. And even though it's different than our culture today, I think it's, it's valuable to see that we still use our canvas. They were using their hair and their appearance as a canvas to make a statement. And we do the same thing. Maybe it's with our hair and we, we go through that phase where we want to dye our hair a certain color. We want to do a bold haircut. But other th think of the other canvases that we use to make statements. Our skin, people get tattoos, and they make statements about their, themselves on their skin. Their clothing and their appearance and the icons and graphics and imagery and logos and brands that they wear, right? We would agree. That's a way that we make a statement. The t-shirts that we wear and the, the, the messaging that we put. The back of our cars. Oh, man, how many of you have had your car just littered with bumper stickers? I did in college because I thought that was the thing to do. Right? And I had all these stickers all over. I looked like a hippie van going to a Grateful Dead concert. It was just covered in stickers. It was just all these different things. And some of them were funny and some of them were about Jesus and some of them were, you know, whatever. And I had fake bullet hole stickers. And I don't know why. I just did. 
is a car. Don't diss me, some of you. But it was a canvas, and I was making a statement. How many of you see a car, and they're using it as a canvas to make a statement? We use our social media to make a statement. And Paul's seeing that they're using their hair, they're using their beauty, they're using their appearance to make a statement, to make a social statement. And they're using that statement to poke, to disrupt, to stir the pot. Not to benefit people in growing in their faith, but to prove a point, as I did in my young 20s, because I thought I knew better than every Christian in my church that I grew up in, right? And I was holier than thou, and I had it figured out, and I was more spiritually mature. Well, that's what they're doing. Oh, we don't need to do this. We don't need to act this way. We don't need to cover our heads. We don't need to cut our hairs these certain ways. We can do it because we know that Jesus loves us no matter what. And Paul's saying, yes, theologically, you're correct. But rooted behind that act of socially making a statement is an arrogance, is a self-righteousness, is a I'm better than you, and I know it. And it's not uniting his church, it's dividing his church. They began to see that the physical state of their head was a symbolic representation of how they honored and dishonored their spiritual heads the spiritual leaders in their life, whether it be a spouse or their pastor or even God. And that headship is a word that makes some of us uncomfortable. When Paul talks about it in verse three, he says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That word head can mean a couple of different things, but it, it is tied to this connotation of authority and this idea of source. It is an authority that God is the authority over the church. He's the head of the church, right? In, in Ephesians 1, he says Christ is the head of the church. He's the authority over the church. But he also says at one point in Ephesians 4 that Christ is the head of the church. And what he's meaning there is he's the source of the power and source of life and source of truth and source of everything. Like the, the head of a river is the source of this flow. But headship makes us uncomfortable because we think of control and manipulation and, and oppression. But what Paul is illustrating in this idea of bringing in headship and this theme here is he's talking about the importance of the authority figures God puts in our lives. And even within the Trinity, we see authority, right? We see the Father has a will and the Son submits to it. Jesus submits to the authority of the Father. Jesus isn't in the garden praying and saying like, watch me now, Dad. Take that. There's an authority that he sees in the Father, but there's a submission that happens simultaneously. And sometimes we think submission and equality can't go coexist. If you're asking me to submit, then that means I'm inferior. But at no point would we say that Jesus was inferior to the Father or lesser than the Father? But we clearly see that the Son submits to the Father. So when Paul says that woman is, or man is the head of the woman, it's not meaning oppression and authority to override or manipulate or oppress or anything like that. What it means is there is an act of submission, but it is a mutual submission, and there is a sacrifice, and what that's going to foster is a unity. 
within the marriage, within the trinity, or in this context that he's writing to, within the church. Because he's looking at the Corinthian church and they're cutting their hair and they're doing their styles and doing all these things. Why? Because they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be, be under an authority and under a headship and they don't want to, oh, they get stir crazy in that. Because they see submission as a dirty word. And Paul is trying to lead them towards fostering a unity within the church. That Jesus died for the entire church and that unified, man, they're going to make an impact for the gospel. But disjointed and divided, going to be tough. And he brings it back to this idea with unity and gender and our identity and all of this. He brings it back to the imagery that we see from Genesis in verse 7 through 9. And again, this could be an entire sermon, but I'm just going to read the verse and talk about it very quickly. He says, a man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so he takes us to Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, where Adam is created by God, and they're looking around, and there's no helper, there's no co-partner, there's no teammate. He's looking around, he sees rhinos and giraffes and donkeys, and God's like, you see a teammate? <laughs> nope. And so what happens? And if you're familiar with the story, what happens? Right? Woman comes from man. God removes his rib, very significant imagery there, not his head, not his foot, not his behind. Think about where she's taken. Taken from his rib, a sign of equality. Not lower, not higher, but equal. Woman came from man. That's what he's talking about in Genesis chapter 2. That's what Paul is pointing us to. This is not some, woman, uh, you came from me, get back in the kitchen. No, that's not what he's talking about. That's authoritarian, that is, that is hierarchical, that is not seen. In the Trinity. That is not seen in what Paul wants for the church. That is not seen in what Paul wants for, for the, the marriages of the church. But he's saying woman came from man as a rib in Genesis chapter 2. And woman was made for man, again, not to be misused and abused, but Eve in chapter 2 is referred to as the helper. And in our context, we might hear helper and think, what? Put on your apron. Get back to the kitchen. You're meant to help me. And we see this as derogatory. And I, 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 I want us to see this imagery and this language. And some of you might be familiar with it. Some of you might read it and be like, woman is helper. That means she's lesser. No, she's not. Because the same language to describe Eve is describing our, our, our God in the Psalms. Because David's going to refer to God as our helper. And when David writes about our God in heaven as helper, does he mean, God, you are lesser than me? No. There's an equality there. There's a unity there. And Genesis clearly begins to teach us about the distinction of male and female. And, and again, we don't have time today to get in all the distinctions on masculinity and femininity. We could do a whole series on this. But humanity as we see in what Paul writes, as we see in Genesis, humanity is made in the image of God. That is a phrase that you see. We are made in the image of God. We bear his thumbprint. We are to be like him, meaning that God is a God of unity, a God of community between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three work as one. In marriage, we're supposed to be united. 
in our relationships with each other. We're supposed to be united in this way. Within the church, we are meant to bear that image, to be united. And what Paul is confronting in this text is not haircuts and hats. What he's really confronting is, guys, we've deviated from God's heart for the church, which is to be united as one moving forward because united, we're going to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Well, we're so busy making our social statements and expressing our canvases that we've got off track. We've created a disruption. So he calls out the Corinthians, not to control them, not to become carbon copies. I've been in churches where people become carbon copies, right? It's not what he's going for either. But I think what he gets at is something that we can all stop and think about this morning. When it comes to expressing myself, my identity, and the canvases that God has given me, am I diminishing the gospel's effectiveness? When people look at my canvas, when they look at my life, will they be confused like they were in Corinth? Well, you believe in this, but your subliminal messaging there looks a little different. When they look at my social media, or they look at my family, or they look at my canvas, will it contradict the words that come out of my mouth? Will it contradict the message of the gospel? And secondly, would it distract within the church? Would people within the church be looking at my life and be distracted and put their eyes on Sean rather than on Jesus? When we come to church, are people putting their eyes on you and the statement that you're trying to make? Am I doing anything to diminish the gospel's effectiveness? Am I doing anything to take people's eyes off of Jesus? This could be our physical appearance, right? This could be the, the, the statement or the, the messaging that we're trying to get across. Think of that. This permeates in a, a variety of aspects of our life, but Paul is challenging them in this letter. And all throughout the Corinthian letters, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you're going to see this common theme that comes up, and Paul's going to challenge the early church, and he's going to say, are you willing to give up some of your liberties? Are you willing to give up some of your freedoms? Are you willing to give up some of your rightness, right? You picture the church in Corinth, kind of like some of the American church today. We're so right, we're doing it wrong. Because there's unintended consequences, unspoken messaging. So am I willing to sacrifice some of my freedoms and some of my liberties and some of my rightness for the sake of someone else? Paul, throughout the Corinthian letters, messages that to them. Are you willing to give up some of yourself for the sake of someone else? I'll give you an example, and it has to do with physical appearance. And then we'll land the plane. Anytime I... I, uh, I I get asked to do a wedding, because as a pastor, I get sometimes asked, hey, will you officiate a wedding? One of the things that I will do is I will ask the couple, what do you want me to wear, right? Because I don't know. I don't know what kind of wedding they're into, right? I've been to all kinds of different weddings. I've been in backyard weddings and beach weddings and, uh, you know, outdoor weddings, indoor weddings, all kinds of things. And, and so I'm, I, honestly, in a part of our process is what vows do you want to do and blah, 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 and what's the flowers like? And what am I going to, you know, and what do you want me to wear? You want me to wear a tux, <laughs> a suit? Uh, am I wearing a Hawaiian shirt and sandals? Like, what am I wearing? I, you know, 
I've even asked at times, do you want me to use a real Bible or an iPad? Because some people, they, they want that image in their photo. Like, they want the pastor holding a Bible. So I have to literally, like, print my notes and print them real small and tape them in my Bible. Dearly beloved, next time you see me do a wedding, know that I'm cheating. I'm not really holding a Bible uh, and reading out of it. But my intent there with the couple is to say that day is about you. It's not about me. That day is not about the officiant, the pastor. No. I am there to honor and celebrate you. You're the couple. You're the one everybody's there to party with and celebrate. And so I will do and I will conform to whatever helps honor and celebrate you. So if it's formal, let's be formal. If it's casual, let's be casual. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. Understanding the context of our culture, understanding the way that messages get understood and misunderstood. Am I willing to make sacrifices to honor someone else? Am I willing to make sacrifices that foster unity for the kingdom of God? That's his heart for the church, to be united so that they can go share the love of Jesus because our world needs to know that Jesus loves them, don't they? And when we're squabbling and when we're busy making our own personal statements and we're all fighting for our agendas, it's confusing, it's distracting, it's disruptive. And I've got a lot of liberties and I am willing to sacrifice those so that you come to know Jesus better, so that our community comes to know Jesus better. I believe that's Paul's heart for this. I believe that's Paul's heart for the church. I believe that's Jesus' heart for the church. Would you be united as one? Just as the Trinity, just as we see in marriage, just as we see in the church. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, we come before you humbly because we aren't perfect and we don't have this thing perfectly figured out. but we want to be more like you, Jesus. And I pray that we are a church that rallies around the essentials. We rally around the truth of who you are, Jesus, and your love and your gospel. And that there are some things in life that are a little more gray, a little more unclear, a little more up for interpretation. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you guide us in wisdom and discernment, and truth, but also guide us with humility. Help us to be a humble church. Help us to be willing to adapt for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, to honor and celebrate the people that you've put in our lives, God. We pray for our city. We pray for our church. We pray for our community, God, that your gospel would permeate we pray for those searching for answers right now, God, that they would find those answers. And that whatever part we play in it, I just pray that we're willing and available and humble. Unite your church, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening. 